Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. All right, this morning, let's get into the word, Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4. I'm going to read, and you follow along in your copy and hear the word of God this morning, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And may the Lord bless this morning the reading and the preaching of his word. As we come toward the end of our study in the book of Ephesians, I want to begin for us this morning a sermon series within a sermon series. As we come to the text that we have just considered uh, by reading the Word of God this morning, we find the Apostle Paul giving us instruction on what it means to be Spirit-filled families. Spirit-filled families. And so starting today, I want us to think along those lines with the Apostle Paul. You remember last Sunday as we were in Ephesians 5 once more, we heard Paul's final exhortation, his final instruction to consider how we walk as believers. That is to consider our way of life as we live in this world. And last week we talked about how Paul wanted us to walk as those who are wise, to live according to God's wisdom in this life. Paul tells us to walk wisely in this world. And and being wise in our walk, the last instruction that he gave us was to to yield our lives to the control of the Spirit, that we would live our lives under the influence and the operation of the Spirit of God at work within us. And that final command, that final imperative, is what Paul uses to govern the text and the passage that we're looking at even today. And so Paul tells us that in our homes— as wives and husbands, as marriages, as fathers and mothers and children, that we need to let the Spirit of God be in full control. 
He's writing to call us in these verses to be spirit-filled families. And oh, how we need this message today. How we need it in the church of Jesus Christ today. Andreas Kostenberger and David Jones in their book, God, Marriage, and Family, write, For the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family, made up of a father, mother, and a number of children, has in recent years begun to be viewed as one among several options. And how true that is. You know that our culture today, and in our culture and society today, the family is under attack from every single angle. Relationships between husbands and wives, and even the relationship between parents and children is constantly under attack. This is a message that we desperately need to hear, but I would remind us this morning, as we think about being spirit-filled families, this is not simply a cultural war. Although the culture is certainly engaged in battle against these things, this is not primarily a cultural war, but rather it's a spiritual war. I think it's not by any accident that Paul, as he's writing here at the end of Ephesians, gives us instructions on what it means to be spirit-filled families in our relationship as husbands and wives and the parents and children. And then in very close proximity to that, at the end of Ephesians 6, he gives us a whole passage about engaging in spiritual warfare. In fact, one of the, uh, the largest battlefields where spiritual warfare takes place is in the home, within the marriage, and in the relationship between parents and children. So as we talk about being spirit-filled families, we need to understand this isn't simply something for the culture to consider, but it's a message for us as the church today. Now, as we go through this sermon series within a series on spirit-filled families, I want us to start today by looking at the foundational message that Paul gives us here. I know when we come to these texts here at the end of Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians 5 and the first of Ephesians 6, as we hear about wives and husbands and parents and children, we so often want to grasp quickly for the practical. We want to know, tell me what I've got to do, pastor, uh, to have a godly wife. Tell me what I've got to do to have a godly husband. Tell me how I can fix my marriage. Tell me what I can say so that my wife will do this or be that. Well, you got to come next Sunday to get that. And the truth is, there is nothing, nothing that you can say. There is nothing that I can give you uh, this morning uh, that is a one-step quick fix for any marriage or any relationship within a family today. But certainly, Paul, as he's writing these words, gives us some very practical insights and that practicality is good, that, that pragmatic, that biblical pragmatism of how to be a godly wife or a godly husband or godly parents and how to be a godly child. All of that is certainly important, and we'll get to that. Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about what it means to be a, a wife and a husband according to God's design and what it means to be parents and children in a spirit-filled family. But this morning, I want us to start at the foundation I want us to, to dig down to the bedrock that we can build a spirit-filled family upon. And that is understanding how we can make much of God in our marriages. How we can make much of God in our marriages. And this is what Paul tells us in the, the very middle of our passage this morning. In Ephesians 5 verses 31 and 32. 
Let me read them for us again. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Making much of God in our marriages. I believe these verses hold for us uh, the key in what it means to be spirit-filled families. If we want to have a a right relationship between parents and and children and have a right relationship between husbands and wives, we need to hear what God is saying to us in these two verses today. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. And these verses give us the foundational truth of why and how marriage is to be held in honor among all. So this morning, as we think about making much of God in our marriages today, I want to share with you three eternal truths about marriage. Three eternal truths about marriage. And and maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, why do I need to hear a message about marriage if I'm not married? Well, maybe you're in the season of life where you're looking for a spouse. These will be some important words for you to consider as, as the Lord brings that person into your life that you will enter into a covenant relationship with. Maybe you're in a marriage today and you are far down the road. You have many years together with your spouse and you're wondering, why do we need to hear a message about marriage? Well, you need these words so that you can finish strong. You can finish well in what God has called you to be together. Maybe you're here today and your spouse is no longer with you. Maybe your spouse has passed on into the presence of the Lord that death has entered your marriage relationship and you're wondering, why do I need to hear a message about marriage? I would encourage you today to pray, to use this message as a way that you can pray for the marriages of our church for those marriages that you see around you, and to give thanks to God for the marriage that he blessed you with. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in a marriage that isn't perhaps what you think it should be, nor even perhaps what God has designed it to be. I hope these words that we'll consider this Sunday and even in the Sundays to come will offer hope to you. For God has a desire in your marriage, no matter what state it is, that you would make much of him within it. So this morning, let's look at these two verses in a little bit closer detail. We'll we'll look particularly at verses 31 and 32, but at the same time, we'll broaden our scope as well to hear more about what the, the Bible says in regards to marriage. But three eternal truths that will help us make much of God in our marriage this morning. First of all, number one, marriage is God's doing. Truth number one, marriage is God's doing. The Apostle Paul tells us this in verse 31, where he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you look closely at that verse in your copy of Scripture this morning, you'll, you'll notice that it is contained within quotation marks. Because those words are not original with the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes Ephesians 5:31, he is quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting directly from Genesis 2:24, where we find those words given to us in the creation account. 
And in the creation account, we learn that, that all that we have in this world is God's doing. He created everything, and included in that is marriage. Several years ago, uh, Pastor John Piper, the former pastor there at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, Minnesota, preached a sermon titled, Staying Married Even When You're Not Staying in Love. Staying married even when you're not staying in love. And in that sermon, he, he drives home the point that marriage is in fact God's doing. And he points out three ways that we can understand that. And those three ways are grounded in the words that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 5.31, which he got from Genesis 2.24. We see marriage is God's doing, first of all, because God is the creator of marriage. God is the creator of marriage. When you go back and you read in Genesis 2, God had created the heavens and the earth. He had filled uh, the skies, the, the waters, and had put every creeping beast upon the face of the earth. And he created Adam. And there in Genesis 2, it was the Lord himself who said, it is not good for man to be alone. It wasn't Adam who was sitting there one day and said, you know what, God? I'm all by myself. I think I need, I, need, I need somebody. Would you give me somebody? It wasn't Adam who came up with that idea. It was the Lord himself. God saw Adam. And he said, it's not good that man should be alone. So I will make a helper, he said, who will come alongside him and help him in this task and this responsibility that I placed upon him. And what we discover there is that God is the one who created marriage. It was his divine concept. God's the creator of a marriage. It's his doing. You go a little bit further into Genesis chapter 2, you come to verse 23, and what you discover in that moment is that marriage is God's doing because he was the first father to give away a bride. He was the first father to give away a bride. Uh, I love to hear Pastor Fred Luter. He's a former uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He pastors the uh, Franklin Avenue Baptist Church there in New Orleans. Very dynamic preacher. Uh, but anytime he's preaching at a conference and as he begins his message and is introducing himself, he always takes the opportunity to introduce his wife. And he always describes his wife this way. She is my prime rib. Now, do you know why he describes her that way? He's playing off of Genesis 2 because in the creation account, when God saw it's not good for man to be alone, he needs a helper. What did God do? God put Adam to sleep, and from his side, he pulled a rib, and from that rib, he fashioned Eve. He fashioned this woman. And then in Genesis 2, verse 23, the Bible tells us we, we miss this detail uh, as we're reading along and caught up in what God is doing in creating Adam and Eve. But in Genesis 2, 23, it says very clearly that after fashioning Eve from the rib of Adam, that God brought her to the man. You ever wondered why a father walks his daughter down an aisle in a wedding ceremony and gives her to the man, the groom that is standing there? Because that's what God did at the very first marriage. God gave Eve over to Adam. Marriage is his doing. And then immediately following that verse in Genesis 2, 23, we have our verse here from Ephesians 5, 31. We see that it was God who spoke marriage into existence. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, it's interesting in Genesis 2. When you read verse 24, if you're following the chapter carefully, 
you realize that those words are given to us by the narrator of that chapter or the author of the chapter. They're not spoken by Adam. They're not spoken by Eve, but it's simply the author, the narrator of the story who gives us what Paul quotes here in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, man shall leave a father and mother, hold fast his wife to become one. But it's amazing how Jesus understood those words. You see, Jesus quotes from Genesis 2, 24 and Matthew 19, where he is speaking about marriage. And there, Jesus says, what did God say to you? And he quotes Genesis 2, 24. He quotes from the creation account of the very first marriage that was instituted there in the garden. And so Jesus understood that, that what we have in Genesis 2, 24... What Paul gives us here in Ephesians 5.31 are not merely the words of Moses regarding what took place there in the garden, but rather are the very words of God. This is God giving us marriage. This is God telling us what marriage is constituted of, a man leaving his family, holding to a wife, and two becoming one flesh. Marriage is God's doing. It's his concept. It's his creation. I had the privilege yesterday of presiding over the wedding ceremony of my nephew and his new bride. And in part of that ceremony, I said very explicitly to them, I want you to understand that I am not marrying you today. Now, there are times when couples come to me and they, they ask, Pastor Wayne, would you marry us? And I understand exactly what they mean. And I've used that language myself. And we know what we're conveying by that. What they are saying is, would you perform our wedding ceremony? Would you, would you officiate that occasion? Would you lead us in exchanging our vows and exchanging rings? Would you pray blessings of prayers uh, over us on that occasion? Would you marry us? But the truth is, I marry no one. Regardless of what any minister may say at the end of any ceremony, there's no power invested in me to marry absolutely anybody. I can conduct a service, I can carry on a ceremony, but I marry no one. The reality is, it's God who marries the couple. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, what God has joined together I'm not joining them together. Only God can join a couple together. So in every marriage ceremony, there is a divine act that is taking place, an act in which God is bringing together a man and a woman. He is making one from two in a covenant commitment. And it happens that way because marriage is God's doing. It's God's doing. Secondly, this morning. Secondly, we need to understand the truth that marriage is God's design. Marriage is God's design. Not only is marriage God's doing, but it's also according to his design. As the creator of marriage, he is also the designer of marriage. And he has crafted marriage according to his divine design. And Paul here, back in the broader context of our passage this morning in Ephesians 5, gives us some great understanding of God's intended design for marriage. First of all, he makes it crystal clear of the participants that are to be engaged in marriage. It's clear what constitutes marriage in the eyes of a holy God. It is the union, the covenant commitment between a man and a woman for a lifetime. A husband and a wife coming together, joined by God. It's participants of marriage. 
David Platt, in his book, Counter Culture, writes, The only true marriage in God's eyes remains the exclusive permanent union of a man and woman. And based upon the true words of God, we need not worry about whether marriage is going to make it. Ultimately, we do not look to any court or government to define marriage. God has already done that, and his vote cannot be eradicated by a vote of legislators or the opinions of Supreme Court justices. The supreme judge of creation has already defined this term once and for all. Now, I know there's still much being said in our society, our culture, and our country today regarding marriage. But understand, the definition of marriage has not changed. It has not altered. God is the one who has given us marriage. He is the one who does marriage. He is the one who has designed marriage. And he tells us that marriage is the union between a man and a woman coming together in a covenant commitment. He tells us that this covenant commitment in verse 31 of Ephesians 5 is that of them leaving prior relationships They leave from their parents' home. A husband will leave his father and mother. And this husband and wife now come together cleaving one to another. It's literally a picture of them being glued together, inseparable. They weave their lives to become one. Oh, God is clear in his design for marriage of the participants that it involves. He also tells us that in his design for marriage, it's to be utilized for procreation, for procreation. That is, it's within the confines of a a marriage as ordained and defined by God that children should be brought into this world. I believe that's why Paul has given us Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 on the heels of what he gives us at the end of Ephesians 5. As he's telling us about a godly home, about godly spouses, about a godly marriage, he says, in that... Bring, bring about some godly children. God told Adam and Eve there in Genesis that one of the responsibilities that they had was to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've said this previously in our study uh, on, on abortion, on the sanctity of human life Sunday, that children are a tremendous gift from God. And we need to celebrate them and be thankful for them. And, and as Christians... We need, to, we need to, to bring children into our home as God would allow and bless us to do so. God says, use this marriage that I've made, this marriage that I've designed to, to bring about more image bearers. Not merely for the sake of having children, but to have and to raise godly children. Children that will know and understand and live for the glory of God as well. So God's design for marriage is seen in its participants. It's seen in the act of procreation. But thirdly, God's design of marriage is that it would, that would serve and function as a pillar of society. As a pillar of society. Strong families are built upon strong marriages. And strong marriages lend themselves to strong communities, strong societies. And how we desperately need that today One of the arguments that you perhaps hear as we defend God's definition of marriage as believers and as the church is, what business do we have interjecting our opinions and our our, our beliefs and arguments from Scripture into the lives of consenting adults who seemingly love and want to care for one another? What business do we have to look at them and to say, "You, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, that should not be allowed nor legalized especially? 
What business do we have? Well, this is part of that answer right here. Is that God has given marriage to serve as a pillar of society. It upholds the culture and the civilization that we are a part of. The Bible tells us in Psalm 127.1 that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And the Lord will build a house according to the design that he has for that house. And when you go contrary to that design, all is in vain. It's in vain. It's interesting to me when you look back in the book of Exodus at the Ten Commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel. There are actually two parts to that group of ten. Those two parts mirror uh, the first and second commandment that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22. What is the first commandment? First and greatest commandment he was asked. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Well, that's mirrored in the Ten Commandments by the first four. Uh, One God, don't make any idols, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain, and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy before the Lord. Love the Lord your God in this way. The second commandment that Jesus gave, which was likened to the first in Matthew 22, he said was to love your neighbor as yourself. When you go back and you look at the Ten Commandments, beginning with commandment number five, all of those commandments teach us and instruct us how to relate to our neighbors, how to relate to society. And do you know what the first one among that second group is? Commandment number five, do you know what it is? It's what Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You see, the Lord understood that if we're going to relate well to others, if we're going to relate well in society, if we're going to make it in this world, it begins when we have godly homes, when we have godly families, when we have godly children who are raised by godly parents, who are a part of a godly marriage. God's design for marriage is that it would uphold the society and the culture around it. And oh, how we see this attack today. The BLM movement, the Black Lives Matter movement has not made it any secret that part of their aim is to disrupt, quote, their words, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. That's part of their aim is that they would tear apart the design that God has given us for the upholding of homes, of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father and children under their authority. When that goes out the window, the hope for society won't hang on for long. And I've got to be honest with you today. I'm not trying to be chicken little and tell you that the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But I don't believe there's much hope for culture because culture in our country today is so set against the design that God gives us in his word. It's dead set against upholding the design that God has for marriage, that God has for the home. And when you go contrary to that that design, the house that you are trying to build is one that you are building in vain. It's in vain. It's empty. It's pointless. It won't amount to anything. The pillar of society has been removed from the foundation. And no wonder culture is shaking so violently all the way around us. But hear me this morning. While there may not be much hope for culture who doesn't want to follow the designs of God. For the church today is entirely different. For the church today we have all the hope in the world. 
for God has given us his word and God has shown us his ways and God has called us to walk in the wisdom that he has given us here in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. That we would have spirit-filled families. That if we would yield our lives over to the operation of the spirit within us. And wives would love their husbands and husbands would love their wives and children would obey their parents. Listen, we have hope no matter what's taking place in the world around us. We have hope. Finally, marriage is God's design. Not only because of the participants that are included, the the aspect of procreation and the functioning as, as a pillar of society. But marriage is God's design because it's a picture of God's grace and glory. And this brings us to the final point of the sermon, and really the foundational point of marriage. Truth number three, marriage is God's display. Marriage is God's display. Paul, in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, has given us God's word on marriage. He's told us that this is God's doing and this is God's design. And now in verse 32 in Ephesians 5, he elaborates on that. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage today, my marriage today, is temporary. Our marriages today are momentary. When we enter into heaven, when we live in heaven for all eternity, there will be no giving or receiving in marriage. You will not be married in heaven. Don't say amen right there. It'll give away what's going on in your marriage this morning. Some of you are thinking, please, Lord Jesus, come quickly, like right now. But we need to understand that our marriages in this life are momentary. They're temporary. They're fleeting. They're not lasting. They are not eternal. However, your marriage today is to be a picture of that which is eternal, of that which is lasting, of that which is glorious. God has given us marriage to display, to give us a picture of Christ and his church specifically to display for us how Christ has loved his church and given himself for it, how the church in return is giving itself over to Christ. Paul tells us here this mystery is profound. This is not the first time that Paul has used the word mystery in writing his letter to the Ephesian believers. And when he uses the word mystery, he's not, he's not telling us that there's something that is unknown Although I think we would all agree there's something mysterious about being married. And there's a lot of it that we can't figure out. Can't quite get it right sometimes. But Paul is not using the word mystery in that fashion. Instead, when he writes the word mystery in the New Testament, he's using it in the sense of something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. He's told us already about the mystery Uh, between Jews and Gentiles, the mystery that is revealed in the church that in Christ we have a new identity, we are new creations, that that dividing wall of hostility is no more. We're now one in him. Well, Paul now here is telling us that because Christ has come and the church has been birthed, there's a greater understanding given to marriage. An understanding that was established even prior to the beginning of time. That God from all eternity has declared and decreed and designed that marriage would point us to Christ in the church. That it would point us to the price that Christ paid so that he might have his bride. Oh, many times in the New Testament, Christ is presented to us 
as the bridegroom, as the groom. And he has come to take his bride. His bride are his people, the church of Jesus Christ. And he paid the ultimate cost. He showed the greatest love in order to have her. Paul tells us that's what your marriage is to display to the world around you. Paul says this mystery is profound. The word profound that he uses there in the Greek language is the Greek word megas. It's our word huge. Paul says this is enormous. This is beyond belief. Don't miss this. Don't overlook this. You've got to make sure you understand this. Your marriage is first and foremost not about you, nor even about your spouse. But first and foremost, your marriage is a picture of the glory and the gospel and the grace of God. That's what your marriage is about. And that's why Paul here at the end of Ephesians 5 and going into Ephesians 6 is giving us these instructions of how we're to live, to display this gospel and grace and glory to the world around us. It's my prayer today and in the weeks ahead as we continue on in this series within a series of spirit-filled families that God will strengthen And bless the marriages of Poplar Springs Baptist Church. That God will give us spirit-filled marriages where wives are under the influence and the operation and yielding their lives to the Holy Spirit so that they can submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And that husbands will yield their lives to the operation of the Spirit so that they can love their wives as Christ has loved the church. That God will give us strong marriages that will build strong homes that will raise godly children. That God will let us be a church filled with hope because of the beautiful picture that we see in the marriages that are made up among us of God's grace and God's glory. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. May every marriage in this church paint for us a beautiful picture of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray.